Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We are doing things a little differently this week. Monday Morning QB is taking a week off for International Women's Day, so the long-form podcast is moved back to today. Don't worry, things will be normal again next week. We're bringing you two extended interviews from last Monday. I talk with two former fitness trainers and now labor organizers with the Solid Core United campaign about what it means to form a union as gig workers in the middle of a pandemic. But first up, reporter Amara Evering has a conversation with immigration lawyer Linda Brandmiller about the opening of a new child migrant facility in Texas. They address concerns that the Biden administration's immigration policy is reliant on the detainment of children. Okay, um, just a general question to start off with. Why would an unaccompanied child um, immigrate into the U.S.? What are the usual circumstances of these children? The stories are varied, but the trends are generally uh, because the gangs are being uh, are are, exa- are being um, the gangs are targeting a lot of these children, both girls and boys. The many of the children have been abandoned by parents. Some of them were left with grandparents. Grandparents then become elderly, in many cases uh, have passed away, so there's nobody to care for them. Sometimes it's economic, but mostly it's fleeing the circumstances that they're being faced with in their country. Oftentimes it is also to reunify with a family member here in the United States. So how would you characterize this new migrant facility that has opened under Biden? There's a lot of confusion for me too. Um, yeah. Is this essentially a detention center? Is this? It is. What is it? It's a jail for kids. Um, and it's not new. And that's partly my problem. I've been monitoring these influx centers. They've called them influx centers, overflow centers since 2014, when they first popped up, uh, two of them in San Antonio, one at the YMCA and one at Lackland Air Force Base. This is not new which is what is so troubling under the Biden administration, because we learned this lesson under the past several administrations. It is not a good fix. It does not fit, fix the problem at all. It's unnecessary, it's costly, and it does not comply with the legal requirements for how children are supposed to be uh, treated when detained by, by the government. So uh, there is an established, program already based on the 1997 Flores Settlement Agreement, which dictates how these children are supposed to be treated. They are supposed to be in state licensed facilities. There are about 200 of them across the United States. They are, and the state licensure provides some oversight for these these programs. There is a maximum number of days that they are supposed to be detained. And every time we create one of these temporary sites, we create a new problem, both for the children as well as the system. The current 
beds available in the United States are almost 14,000. That's what we are paying for just for children, this is just children's beds. And so I think you, you touched on this a little bit, but I just wanna ask why are children being held in these influx um, facilities? <laughs> is there a, a legal precedence? Was There's, they're not supposed to be held in these influx facilities. The government is claiming this under emergency provisions. There is no emergency. Children are not storming the border. There has been an uptick, I believe is the word they're using, of immigrants entering the United States in the past two months. This is not unusual. It always happens when there's a change in administration. It always happens after the holidays. So this is a trend that has been ongoing for as long as we have been tracking people entering the United States. The problem is that even with this uptick in people entering, it is not predominantly children. It's not even predominantly families. It is predominantly adult males. So although there have been additional children that have entered the United States without parents, because that's specific to what we're talking about in housing these children, it is not, it is not created uh, a need for an influx center. Uh, these children are not coming from the border. They are not coming from Customs and Border Protection offices. They are coming from already established shelters where bed space is available. So the only logic that I could possibly apply to doing this is to, I guess there would be two reasons. One, somebody's making money off of this. And two, it seems to be a backhanded approach for the administration to send a message of enforcement and to not send your children or not allow your children to enter the United States unnecessary and detrimental mm -hmm. to the very children that we're supposed to be assisting. But I know some um, people have pointed out, you know, well, there's a difference between um, CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol Protection and HHS mm -hmm. uh, custody. And so what do you think about people making this distinction? Uh, what is the distinction? Um, and how would you characterize this new migrant facility? Well, the, the distinctions that you're framing have to do with what we saw uh, in, under the Trump administration, where children were literally being kept in cages with tinfoil blankets because there was not enough theoretical bed space for children, and they were being literally being housed at CBP, Customs and Border Protection offices. That's not what this is but it's only a step up. It's still not compliant with the law. So the, the logic for it, there is none. And the way that the system is supposed to work is that a child enters the United States without a parent and they, are, they get to border Customs and Border Protection. They are sent to one of the several hundred facilities across the United States where a bed is available. They then are, uh, they're screened and the vast majority of children do have somebody here to sponsor them. An immediate family member, it could be a parent, a relative, a friend. That sponsor is vetted. So fingerprints are taken and a background check if that's necessary. 
and then the child is reunified with the family. It's not rocket science. The problem is if that revolving door is jammed, then the bed space does not free up for the next child that enters the country without a parent. That's what's happening. The system is not being run efficiently. That's what needs to be fixed under the Biden administration. The problem is that it is taking too long for these agencies to get fingerprints. They are not providing information to the sponsors about where the children are located so the sponsor can't find them. They're not giving the A number to the sponsor, which is the assigned number that immigration gives. So even if a sponsor finds a lawyer, we can't find the child. And then they are charging exorbitant fees to fly the child to the sponsor, uh, including a round trip ticket for an employee to accompany the child. So all of these things put an unnecessary delay in the reunification process, which is part of the problem. The way to address this outside of creating a, a new model of tent cities for, for children is to again, go back and fix the already established system, which is not perfect. Uh, it has been recommended that there be some state oversight, for example, it appears that the federal government cannot get their act together on this. This has been going on for years. So if state oversight were involved in addition to state licensure, then somebody could monitor this better outside of the agency involved. There should be expanded and expedited reunification. Yes, we want to make sure that the children are going to a safe place because in the past that has been a problem, but it shouldn't take that long. We can get fingerprints in a day these days. So there's no reason for, for exorbitant delay. And then lastly, there should be some state oversight in providing faster screening for these children so that they can get legal counsel immediately and get their cases, immigration cases started, no matter where they are in the United States. So these, this center in Carrizo Springs, for example, and I understand that the government is also planning on reopening the homestead site in Florida, which was closed under huge controversy a couple of years ago because they were not complying with contract requirements. So no matter where these are set up, they are almost always deliberately in the middle of nowhere, geographically isolated. Carrizo Springs is a town of fewer than 6,000 people. So the town itself becomes very dependent on this process. It is fiscally irresponsible because it is triple the cost to house a child at Carrizo Springs or one of these makeshift sites than it is in the established center. And even as COVID is the latest excuse, as I said, this has been going on since 2014. So that's, that's just the excuse du jour, but it, it, it in no way means that this is the alternative to the system that's already in place to house children. No, and I know that a lot of people have kind of described this facility in like very a very rosy type of, of picture. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, recreational activities. Sure. <laughs> um, but what, how could detainment um, affect children um, 
who are being kept there? These are teenagers. That's a, that's a great question. And yes, predominantly these are teenage children. This is very frustrating to them when they're housed in these temporary facilities because they feel like there's not being any progress done on their case. It's detention with a smiley face, but it's still detention. And because they are routinely moved around, they, that restarts their bed space days. So it's, it's sort of like a shell game. So if, it, if children are only supposed to be uh, detained for 20 days in a facility that is not part of the established Florida Settlement Agreement, for example. So if on that 17th, 18th, 19th day, we move them to a new site, a new tent city, we count that day, those days over again. So you can imagine how frustrating that is for a child who feels like they've quote unquote made it here, but yet they are still locked down and not progressing in their case. What often ends up happening, especially with older children, is they finally just say, you know, I can't take it anymore, just deport me. Which again, I don't think is, uh, I think that's part of the master plan. I don't think that's by, that's by design, it is not by mistake. This is being done to send a message of strength enforcement. It's what we always do when we're trying to send a message, a deterrent message for immigrants coming to the United States. But it's wrong, it is morally reprehensible, it is fiscally responsible, and it does not comply with the law that dictates how children are supposed to be treated in detention. Oh, and um, just kind of going off that a little bit, I know someone described um, this new migrant facility as the Rolls Royce. Of yeah, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Homestead being opened and people are predicting that there will be more and more facilities that will open. Um, so why might people have, immig um, immigrant advocates have a um, fear that there's gonna be an expansion of inhumane treatment, prolonged stays in temporary facilities? Um, where, do, where do you think this concern comes from? History. History teaches us and has taught us if we pay attention that is exactly what happened. There is abuse, physical, sexual, there are accidents. It is not designed to care for children the way that the law dictates. So my question would be, if there is bed space available and you're moving children from an established facility to one of these influx centers, why do you need to do that? It, it, there's just absolutely no logic. And again, this is exactly what the government did starting in 2014 when I witnessed this firsthand in San Antonio. They were physically moving children from the established shelter in San Antonio at BCFS to the Lackland Air Force Base. So every report, if you read the reports that have come out now, even the spokespeople for HHS have said that these children are coming from quarantine in established shelters. So this is either a makeshift way to jack up appropriations because it, it worked in 2019. If you need to show a, if you want to show a need, you need, 
you need to invent it if that's the case. And that's what this is. This is an invented emergency. And I put that in air quotes. So appropriations goes up and, and people feel better because they think, oh, well, we're throwing more money at this. And no matter which side of the aisle you are on, no matter what your feelings are about immigration, in particular, children who immigrate without parents to the United States, you have to be cognizant of the fact that this system in Carrizo Springs and Homestead and wherever else they plan on opening another influx shelter is not a good idea. It's not necessary. It's overly costly and it's potentially dangerous for children. So somebody's going to have to help me understand why the Biden administration in particular is doing this. And it breaks the hearts of the advocates, me included, who thought this was going to be better, but it's not. And it is a huge step back. And what is most troubling for us as advocates is that we know that this administration knows better because they learned this lesson under Obama. They learned it again under Trump. So why is it that we are going backwards? We've not learned from history. We've not learned from the mistakes of the past and are instead recreating them at the cost of these children. And so it's a systematic issue that's obviously larger than Trump. Um, Correct. And so it's an ongoing immigration issue, like all of the ongoing immigration issues. This one is particular to children. So the irony is that by calling it the Cadillac of care and there's a, I don't know, a barbershop and a, and a soccer field, that that's supposed to somehow make this better is a euphemism for baby jails. And the bottom line is it is unnecessary. Children are not being kept in cages with tinfoil blankets at Customs and Border Protection. I mean, CBP does a great job of, of doing what they can to try and quell whatever uptick is going on at the border. And they don't wanna house children any more than we wanna see them house children. That's not what's happening here. So there is either misinformation, misguided information or misinterpretation about this uptick in in immigration uh, entries in particular for children, or it's deliberate, which scares me even more, uh, in order to create a need for these kinds of shelters. So you kind of mentioned alternatives to the mm-hmm. facilities. Um, how, what are alternatives to this system? How do we deal with children who are unaccompanied at the border? And again, that's a great question. Children will always, enter the country without parents based on their individual needs, crises, and circumstances. And the Flores Settlement Agreement from 1997 specifically dictates how we are supposed to treat them. So the 200 or so established facilities across the country, that program, as flawed as it is sometimes, is already established. We're already paying for it and it is not at capacity. So there isn't a problem to fix as, that would respond to a need for, for creating influx centers. The problem we need to fix has to do with the established facilities 
and the reunification process and the exorbitant fees that they are trying to charge sponsors to fly children unnecessarily in some cases and along with a, a staff person to accompany them, which makes it sometimes cost prohibitive for a sponsor to actually get the, the child reunified with them. So the, the answer in, in my mind is to focus on the established process that ORR already has in place. I would again suggest some state oversight. I would suggest, it's been suggested that the Biden administration create some kind of a committee. There are many advocates, me included, who would be more than happy to help some of what is being considered as viable options, such as these influx centers. And just as a, a last question, um, I know that you commented um, that this facility goes against what President Biden promised he was going to do. Um, in terms of this administration's handling of immigration as a whole, are there other ways that he's kind of not lived up to promises? Um, what can be done better in terms of the system as a whole? Well, let's face it, he's got his hands full. And we all knew as hopeful as we were when he won the election, that this was gonna be a difficult process. It's been difficult under every administration that's ever dealt with immigration. And, and even those that haven't dealt with immigration because the issues remain constant. So there is a need to look at comprehensively what's going on with immigration. And we are hopeful that the Biden administration will do that, including what he has said is addressing the root causes of why immigrants come to the United States. In many cases, they come because they want to work. So they want to generate some income, send it back to their family and return to their family. The way that the system is designed, however, once you enter the United States, you're sort of like locked out. If you leave, you're not coming back. So there are lots of different programs that we could look at, including a, a guest worker program that might address some of the overriding issues of, of immigration. I think the reason that he, the reason that the Biden administration is having a tough time right now is because they are simultaneously trying to undo some of the illegal practices that the Trump administration put into place, such as the Remain in Mexico program, which was against every treaty, international uh, program, our own policies and laws, which required asylum seekers to remain outside the country, specifically in Mexico, awaiting their case. So while he's trying to undo some of these issues overall, this, it, it seems that somebody thought that this uh, creation of uh, influx centers for children might be, might balance the scales, if you will, with what he's trying to do in letting people come in at the border. So it's almost as if we're saying, yeah, we're gonna let you in, but now we're gonna lock you up in this tent. It's an enforcement message for children. At the same time, today it was just announced that the family 
centers in Texas, and there are two of them that can house up to several thousand people, are being closed or that people are being moved out quicker. So in terms of politics, when people latch on to, oh my God, you're just letting people enter the country, or you are, you know, you're just, you're just letting them go. It's ironic that for children in particular, we're sending the opposite message. We're saying, not so fast. Not only are we not going to comply with the law, which dictates how you're supposed to be treated, we're going to set you up in the middle of nowhere, in the Texas desert, in a town of fewer than 6,000 people, in a tent city, where we're going to house you temporarily uh, until there is bed space available for you somewhere. Thank you so much. Um, oh, my pleasure. Uh, I want to know if you have any closing comments. I know that for me personally, this was one of the most confusing and difficult stories to track. Um, yes. So it was just like, I, it's like you, you, you don't even know who to listen to. After. Yes. But anyways, do you have any closing comments? Um, I, I applaud the media for focusing on this issue because it is complicated. And the reason it's confusing partly is because of photos that people are associating with detained children that we've seen in the past with what this center is, for example. And it's sort of an immigration system that runs parallel to our other immigration system. So because the, the law affecting children is so very specific from 1997, it's not rocket science for this administration to figure out how this is supposed to be done. And calling it an emergency is what they've done since 2014. And labeling it an emergency allows for this sort of dual system of influx centers. But it's not an emergency and it is not necessary and I implore the Biden administration to close these sites, save the money, and focus on fixing the system that is already established for housing unaccompanied minors. That was immigration lawyer Linda Brandmiller in conversation with reporter Amara Evering. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, I sit down virtually with Emily Collinson and Rachel Hornstein, two former Solid Core fitness trainers who are working to build a union in the dynamic gig economy. They've made incredible strides since the public launch of their campaign this summer, filing several charges with the National Labor Relations Board, winning reclassification from independent contractors to employees, and now working towards affiliation with a large national union. Consider this an early snapshot of the movement to reshape gig work and our economy broadly. So I want to start by, by asking about the core demands that you issued, which 
um, rightfully were around COVID. And I think it's obvious for listeners why folks in positions where you're directly interacting with uh, clientele uh, and doing physical exertion and breathing a lot, you, why you'd want to have uh, protections for COVID. And so beyond that, uh, my first question is, how, how did you make that step from issuing these really logical demands about, about COVID protections to expanding that focus to include reclassification and unionization? Why, why did you see that as the next logical step? Yeah, I mean, I'll start and just say that um, from the very beginning, there were multiple action items on our list to take care of and to find solutions for, but we prioritized that list. And it was very clear at the time that COVID was the most uh, aggressive issue that we needed to try and find uh, a way to rectify and make sure that uh, not only ourselves, but the families of the clients we were teaching every day were remaining safe and okay during the pandemic. Yeah, to add to that, um, as we had these kind of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people to kind of broaden our community and build relationships uh, to figure out how folks were feeling about a union, we had some people who, you know, were feeling okay about COVID and, and their risk level was maybe a little higher or they felt safe and comfortable in the studio. Um, but it always, that conversation always came with the caveat of, however, I have this issue regarding my pay, or I have this issue regarding management. And so we, we realized that there was definitely a um, desire for broader sweeping change and that, you know, we'd already kind of laid the groundwork for, for adding on to our COVID list of demands with other things. Mm -hmm. And relatedly, like soon after issuing these demands, uh, you started issuing or filing these NLRB charges. So I want to ask what kinds, just briefly, you know, can you list out what types of charges these were? I know, I know some of them were about um, unfair termination. And then more broadly, how did filing these charges help the campaign itself beyond just helping rectify the issues that were identified in the charges? Yeah, uh, Emily knows the charges. Uh, she's the one that actually did the filing, so she knows those. Uh, but I will just put in my two cents that having that actual super important and legitimate background work of working with the NLRB was not only uh, gratifying and sort of validating for our efforts that there was real merit here to the issues that we were bringing up, but it just, it continues to be a way to validate ourselves and um, validate the efforts across the board to other people that are looking in that we are doing the real work behind the scenes and that there are important changes that need to be made. Yeah, definitely agree with Rachel. And, um, you know, I hadn't known when I was terminated for union organizing um, and for organizing just generally, even really before the idea of a union took off broadly. I, I didn't know that there were all these kind of fail safes. And so when I was reaching out to organizers I knew and I told them, you know, I've, I've been terminated for doing this. That was when I was directed to the NLRB. And uh, I obviously had no idea what I was doing when I initially submitted the paperwork. I just like typed furiously about my experience. And um, then, it kind of, that turned into a list of eight charges um, and that did include my wrongful termination, but other, other charges that I didn't recognize even were um, 
law breaking um, violations of you know the section seven of the NLRA, which is talking about you know interfering with, restraining, and coercing employees of their rights um, when it comes to organizing. So things like maintaining an overly broad policy in the coach handbook about what you can say about the company, things like that, that like are definitely towing a line of being improper or um, forming a coach council. So the day after I was fired and the company had clearly seen screenshots of me, um, you know, talking about unions, um, they launched a coach council initiative where they chose um, coaches, most of whom have relationships with management, though that's not to say they're not lovely people. Um, they do have those personal relationships. And that was where people were directed like, oh, if you want to talk to a peer about your complaints, here's where you go, which obviously struck us as being um, shady, to say the least. But what we didn't realize initially was that it is actually illegal if the if the intent is there to interfere or dominate union space. So those are a couple of the charges. Um, also coercing people when it came to talking about safety issues in the workplace, um, which we honestly never went the OSHA route, which is a very viable route that we could have gone. Um, but you know, telling coaches that you, if you feel unsafe, if you feel like your health is at risk, you know, don't, don't talk to anybody but this one person about it. Um, and that's apparently also unlawful. So we'll see where these charges lead. They've been filed for about seven months now, and it seems as though the case is wrapping up, but um, we're definitely hopeful that at least, you know, some of these will be recognized as having merit. Sure. Now, a lot of unions, especially looking at like teachers union activity over the last several years, have relied a lot on support of community and allies like, you know, uh, students and parents in the, in, the in the teacher strike wave were crucial for success. And so I wonder, you know, after issuing these these COVID demands and after the NLRB charges were filed, what kind of support have you gotten from clientele um, in, in this effort? A huge amount of support from clientele from not only the solid core community, but the larger boutique fitness community of clients and instructors in that the industry has been under a weird spell uh, where the contractors and the coaches and the instructors have had their own weird set of rules in the fitness industry and have been exploited for many years. And a lot of our clients are saying, you know, I can't believe you've been treated this way. I love your class. You're obviously an asset. Uh, I won't stand for this either, you know, keep going. We've received a lot of positive. Uh, and, you know, as with anything, we've received a lot of questions, a lot of clarifying uh, comments being like, hey, is that real? What about it? Um, and it's been an awesome educational effort for us as well. One of the phenomenons that we've seen and that there, it's actually been talked about in, in kind of other circles in the industry is that there's been this glossy sheen over boutique fitness and it's very like aesthetics based and there's often a lot of social clout that goes along with being a coach or being a client and these classes are expensive as well so for coaches to speak out and kind of you dull that that shine and say, you know, it's not all as rosy as it looks. Um, we have all of these issues. 
we've seen clients um, really seem jarred by that, um, not only from the perspective of, you know, everything looks like it's so good and so fun, I can't believe it's not, but also from the perspective of as a paying customer who's paying, in the case of Solid Core in DC, Solid Core runs you about $40 a class if you're doing like a, you know, a drop in rate if you're not buying packs. So for people who are investing that significant of an amount of money in the experience and in, you know, spending time with their coach being trained, they're really shocked to know that there were no benefits, that the pay was below industry averages um, and that, you know, management kind of treated people as disposable and that really didn't mesh well with people's, uh, with people's idea of what they thought their money was buying. Yeah, I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense, right? Like if a company is expecting such a high level of quality and an incredible experience for all their classes, why are they not ensuring that the person responsible for creating that quality is taken care of? It doesn't make, it, like it just doesn't add up. Um, and then one thing I would equate it to is, you know, the trend on the internet right, uh, right now and recently in the past year or two that people are recognizing in a more corporate setting, like we don't want pizza parties, we don't want, you know, your little kudo boards or whatever online. Um, and then for the fitness industry, like Emily mentioned that glossy sheen, it's kind of like all of these non-compensated extra things that you're expected to do. And they're like, do all of this stuff to make the company more money, but you'll get ooh, Instagram followers and you'll get, you know, maybe your picture on the wall of a Lululemon, uh, which is like, okay, great. But I'd also like to pay my bills. I'd also like to not be afraid that I'm going to be, you know, in, in a health way, injuring my client's families. Um, or and I want to be safe myself in these rooms and then during these classes. So it's, it's, there's a lot of different industry-wide and cross-industry similarities here that are coming to light that I'm super hopeful we can rectify and make long-lasting change. Um, related to that, uh, you know, I've, I was looking at your Twitter page and you've been re retweeting a lot about the, the movement fights at uh, Alphabet, Amazon, even SoulCycle. And so I wonder, you know, in addition to this, this support from clientele, what does it mean for your unionization effort to see all these other workers across different industries also fight for, you know, COVID protections and unionization, these same things that you're, that you're fighting for. Go for it. Emily's the Twitter person for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the operator of the, the tweets though. Anyone's welcome to, to join in. Um, I think that COVID has been um, obviously a really pivotal time for so many reasons um, when it comes to labor, but one, one of those major shifts that I think we've seen in mainstream discourse is this acknowledgement that when people feel unsafe in their workplace, there's often nowhere to turn unless there's a union or when people aren't being compensated for the degree of risk that they're taking on or the true like, you know, length of time they're working, whether it be, you know, staying after class to clean a studio, which has been uncompensated time for years. Um, people have kind of been paying more attention to these issues because the stakes are higher than ever. You know, before there were workplace specific injuries that could occur. And that's not to say that they couldn't be 
definitely deathly or like very dangerous. But now people are recognizing like if, if this isn't solved, if people don't unionize or, you know, regain power in their workplace in, to some degree, there could be deaths and a lot of them. And so it's been very reassuring to see um, that that discourse become mainstream and even like the fight for 15 people recognizing the real value of the work that our essential workers perform. Um, we, we obviously are really inspired by all of these movements that have been, you know, in the works for decades. Like we're not the first people to, to try to do um, something kind of new or to unionize in um, a, a relatively young industry. So looking at what the alphabet union's doing, for example, and the way that they are able to uh, bring people's attention who aren't normally focused on labor issues onto, you know, these sorts of movements has been good. Um, especially just seeing people be creative. There's been a very almost narrow definition yeah. of what an employee looks like and what a union looks like. And people are starting to realize that that needs a bit of a modernization and there needs to be new approaches that incorporate gig workers. And so seeing other people who have been working on these issues for much longer than, you know, Rachel and I have at really coming up with these incredibly innovative plans for securing additional rights for anyone participating in an economy uh, has been really educational and uh, inspiring. Yeah, um, I will just add my two sound bites there that uh, seeing the trend of union activity and similar organizing movements across the industry and beyond is an easy tell that we're not the only ones who know that this is wrong and it's time for a change. Uh, and without fundamental change and education about the issues and possibilities, the situation will deteriorate. It's a very urgent need. Um, just as an aside, mentioning the uh, not being compensated for cleaning up after class reminds me of when I was a server and I had to stay doing, you know, rolling up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And still being paid the, the tip minimum wage um, for that work. Um, so I can sympathize with that. The um, age of side duties, man. Industry-wide, the age of side duties for part-timers. Like, what is that about? Someone needs to regulate that. Like, we need to, people need to, I mean, people, labor lawyers and, you know, DOL, whoever's in charge of looking at the language used very broadly in these employment contracts and seeing like, oh, what does side duties actually mean when it comes to, you know, day-to-day -day performance tasks? Um, and should we eliminate this from the vocabulary of contracts uh, if it means that there will not be any compensation rewarded for right. those Can we duties? just like switch out one for one wherever it says side duties, put uncompensated labor, respect it, like required of you? <laughs> yep, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, I guess relatedly, um, you know, even after you win a union, winning that first contract is going to be a battle in itself. And that's still a far ways off. There's a lot of organizing to be done and, and a lot of conversations to be had. But 
just to ask sort of aspirationally, what kinds of benefits and protections would you like to see in that first contract for solid core workers? Em, do you want to start or can I, can I dive in? <laughs> you can dive in, we'll, we'll ping pong back and forth on this one. Okay, I love it. I literally sent her so many notes before this and I was like, I have thoughts. Uh, okay, longer term goals in terms of winning a contract, winning a union recognizing. Uh, first, I would say reparations for a multitude of cases that have been brought to our attention over the past few months, ranging from insurance withholding, wage theft, baseless terminations, extreme safety issues, sexual harassment uh, between current former coaches and employees. Um, and a lot of them who refuse to talk about it. So we don't even know some of these huge issues uh, for fear that it would spiral them back down to where they were when they worked for the company. Uh, it also means a recognized seat at the decision-making table for collective bargaining, rectifying overall working conditions that are well below industry standards. And at a larger scale, I personally hope that our work will make noise in the overall fitness industry, that this is just the beginning. There's obviously a ton of work left to do to change the narrative uh, about what it means to be a fitness professional. Yeah, to add on to, you know, our vision for that first contract, um, there are some COVID demands that have still not been met. And we're really excited for coaches to be able to leverage the power of a union um, to push for policy changes to create a safer workplace. Um, as an example, there are studios that still don't have mask mandates for clients, uh, despite all that we know at this stage in, in the pandemic about how um, crucial mask wearing is to protecting um, others. And also, um, there's no existing policy about travel and quarantining. And, you know, a lot of these states have the self-quarantining mandates, but um, SolidCore has not been enforcing those policies. So people have been going on vacations and then going straight back into coach classes or to manage their studios without any quarantine. Um, there's also still no um, proper contract contact tracing in place, meaning that um, Recently, a studio had seven clients um, contract COVID and a coach also, um, and nobody was notified of any of these cases, despite folk having been in and out of that same space, breathing that same recycled air. Um, there was no notification. So we're still um, excited for, for those COVID demands um, to be an official part of a agreement. And also, um, as Rachel was saying, we want the union to be able to handle grievances on behalf of employees who have had difficulty finding justice when filing complaints with HR or are scared of retaliation and want to make sure that all the mechanisms are in place so that if anything occurs um, moving forward, people feel as though they are able to advocate for themselves or have this, you know, third party advocate on their behalf. And so just a couple of the things we're looking forward to also during this conversion phase, um, there's been a complete overhaul in the employee contract. Um, and people are seeing changes in pay from when they were an independent contractor now to an employee. And there's 
really no room for um, input or pushback at the moment without the establishment of a union. And so this will be truly um, pivotal for folk when they can renegotiate those terms and make sure that there's an employee first, coach first approach being taken in policies across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Solid Course so far has been very client first. And if they'll come, we will hold class, which is not always at the benefit of the coaches. Sure. I know there's just a few minutes left here. Uh, I have one last question. Um, and then maybe Emily, you want to take it first because uh, I know you might have to rush off. But to kind of piggyback off, off your comments earlier about gig work, I'm, I'm interested in, um, I mean, this, is, this concept of gig work has been a focus of a lot of policymakers, economists, et cetera, in recent years. Being in a sort of gig economy job, what, what does it mean in terms of like the value of your work to be considered a gig worker and as, as somebody who's employed in the gig economy or formerly employed in the gig economy, should we even have a gig economy? I mean, what, is, it, is it sustainable as a business model or does it, does it need to be fundamentally changed to something else? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much here that needs to be explored because we've seen that the shift has really been towards this gig worker centric economy. And, you know, I don't have a background in labor law or labor policy. And I've been learning so much throughout this journey and speaking to so many people who are deep in this sort of work or deep in this research. And it seems to me as though the gig economy would never really have taken off to the degree that it has if it didn't benefit employers, bottom line, to the extent that we've seen. And so I think there's a lot that needs to be fundamentally changed and that we need to work to um, undo the damage that's already been done by normalizing this concept that you can create wealth for an employer or for a company and see very little in terms of benefits, whether it be health or um, paid sick leave or even, you know, compensation. We've talked about in the past how Uber drivers um, were often losing money driving for Uber because the cost of wear and tear on their car, gas, things of that nature weren't being taken into consideration. But employers have always framed it as like, oh, well, you have the dream, you're living the dream, you have infinite flexibility. And, uh, kind of as a, as a society recognizing and, and truly just confronting in ways I think has made people uncomfortable previously, confronting the fact that like exchanging flexibility for healthcare benefits or for pay, like that, that we're actually sacrificing a lot um, and it, it will have long lasting impacts on people's um, you know, not only work-life balance, but just generally quality of life um, and the ability to, you know, retire at an age that most people in previous generations could expect to retire or um, access, you know, things like like healthcare, which are is a human right, but um, as, as long as it's in tied to employment, we have to make sure that it is in fact, 
tied to employment and that if you're earning money for somebody, they will ensure that you are healthy and taken care of. So a little rambling, but those are my initial thoughts. And I wish I had more like of an educational background, I think on some of this stuff. So Mm -hmm. I could, you know, really critically be, be analyzing it, but just based on my preliminary knowledge, um, those seem to be some core concerns. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I'll definitely second a lot of what Emily said. Um, We do know that the gig economy does positively benefit some, uh, but the reality is that the ratio of that to those that it negatively impacts is not favorable or indicative of a healthy situation. Uh, No matter what happens in the future, you know, I don't personally, without that much of a background in labor laws or whatnot, there needs to be a widespread protection mandate for gig workers, including fitness professionals. And I'm not sure what that might look like, but something does need to happen. That's Rachel Hornstein and Emily Collinson, former fitness trainers and union organizers with SolidCore United. That does it for our fifth episode of Friday Evening Fireside. We'll be back next Monday with a fresh news program, so expect our next Fireside edition to come March 19th. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns signing off.